And thank you, Nick. Welcome you back to your seats. You can make your way to 1 Peter, chapter 1. We have left the book of James after a few months of verse-by-verse study there. Now, have sped up now 20 to 25 years in church history to the writing of 1 Peter. Put your finger there, I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray as we begin a new study in the book of 1 Peter, Father, that you would touch our hearts, open our hearts to your understanding by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand these truths which are are so important and vital. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, Father, we acknowledge your scriptures as God breathed, not having their origin in man, but coming down to us to save us, to make us whole, to cleanse us, to put us right with God. May we hear the word of the Lord and put it into practice in Jesus' name. Amen. Living as a foreigner in another country is a lot of fun, filled with great adventure, as you can imagine, but not without its difficulties. I wonder how many people here today, this morning, have ever lived as a foreigner in another country. Just raise your hand. Quite a few. Oh, some of you are now living as a foreigner. <laughs> How many are you? You are now currently a foreigner in a place not your own home. When we have a lot of visitors like that as well. Not yet. It won't make any sense. Everybody will be looking at the picture. <laughs> and so. As you can see, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the difficulties and confusion and culture shock of being, having that status as a foreigner living in a land that's not your own. Uh, most of you know and have heard that after graduating from Fuller Seminary, their school of world mission, uh, Barb and I, and two little babies uh, flew off to Japan for four years of missionary work. Quite exciting. From the moment that you get off the plane in Tokyo, from the sights and the sounds and the smells, uh, you know, as Dorothy's famous line is, we are no longer in Kansas, Toto. Uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, nor are we in Northern California. Well, uh, it's pretty obvious right from the jump that there are intense adjustments that are going to have to be made for somebody to adjust well in a foreign country. Now, uh, from the clothes, to the laws, to the food, to the language, to the driving, the monetary system. Now, we can look at that traffic signal from downtown Kanazawa. I was a little confused. (laughs) If you are an indecisive person, do not drive in Japan. (laughs) I looked up there and I was like, okay. (laughs) I can go or I can watch out it's about to turn or I can stop. But, you know, I just chose to turn left. (laughs) I just ignored it all. No, all I did was look around and I just thought, 
you know what? I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And I closed my eyes and proceeded right through. <laughs> and was listening. You know how when you change lanes sometimes and you're just kind of easing your way over and you're kind of looking but kind of not and you're thinking, you know, if I hear something, then I'll know. No. <laughs> I don't do that. Well, of course, thank you for the example there on the screen, but it goes so much deeper than those kinds of things. You start talking about core values, humor. Always remember, you know, when I was being translated, they would laugh where there was no joke, and they wouldn't laugh where there was a joke. Because, well, sometimes that happens here as well. Now, but the ethics, what is right or wrong, perceived values, worldview, social cues, the do's and don'ts, etiquette for every little last social event. Boy, you can really get some culture shock going. The definition of culture shock, the feeling of disorientation experienced by someone who is suddenly subjected to an unfamiliar culture or way of life or set of attitudes. Uh, It just sets you up for some difficulties. Some of them are harmless and funny, mostly embarrassing. I think of some moments. um, Somebody asked me to pray, and I was learning Japanese. Somebody asked me to pray, and I said, it's just going to be very simple. And they said, that's okay, go ahead. And I did. Uh, The word for Lord in Japanese, kami-sama, but I ended up having a problem, and afterwards the pastor took me aside and said, make sure you say kami and not kame, because you said kame, and kami is God, and kame is turtle. (laughs) So I was thanking the Lord Turtle for his benevolent heart for us little tortoises. My brother, who was a missionary to Japan as well, had an interesting, very embarrassing encounter. His language was very good, except he had a little confusion. He went to a church. He noticed uh, that half of them uh, were wearing slippers, and some didn't have slippers. The slippers that he tried on were too small for him, so he wanted to ask the pastor's wife, is it okay if I go barefoot? And the word for barefoot is hadashi. So he said, hadashi desu ka? Is that okay if I go barefoot? But he didn't say hadashi. He said hadaka, which means, do you mind if I go naked? <laughs> to the pastor's wife. And there was a little bit, they do this thing, are they? <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> There's also a saying there called henna gaijin. It means crazy foreigner. <laughs> and uh, my brother deserved that label after that. And then the big joke was afterwards, every time she saw him coming on Sunday, she'd say, Rainan-san, would you like to go naked? <laughs> That's pretty embarrassing. 
I stopped by a flower stand on the way home from work one day to pick up a bunch of flowers for Barb. The woman looked at me alarmed at I'm trying to pay for these, this bouquet. And she said to me, Oksama wa dajobu desu ka? Is your wife okay? And I said, yeah, she's fine. And she says, dame. I don't even have to tell you what that means, right? <laughs> This is a bad thing that you're about to do. And I said, no, 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 that's fine. She said, these are only for the grave. Uh, you can't do it. I said, that's okay. We're, we're from America. We have no association with these flowers. They're very pretty. My wife will like them. Please give them to me. And she said, dummy. <laughs> no way. I said, I want the flowers. I have the money. You will give them to me. No way. She said, I can't do that. That, or that would bring terrible superstition upon your family and terrible luck to your wife. These are flowers for the dead people. And so, you know, I left empty handed. Now, you know, these kinds of things, there are way deeper ones than that, of course. I mean, we were always in trouble for something because of being a foreigner. You know, they would take me aside. They took me aside one day and said, You Americans at lunchtime in the lunchroom, please stop talking. We want to enjoy the quietness and relax together. And then, as soon as it would get quiet, the Americans are like, uh, We're uncomfortable. <laughs> so we're going to start a conversation. And there would, as soon as it would die down, then an American would start talking. They said, Please, you Americans are very comfortable. Chat, 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 chat. We like to be quiet. And so we sat there eating our rice, looking at each other, just dying in the quietness. And so these kinds of things happen all the time. Well, getting to First Peter, we've started this new book. And the kind of overarching theme of this five chapter letter really appears in his opening greeting when he calls the Christians to whom he is writing foreigners. He says, You are strangers living in this world. It will be a very important concept for you to understand. Not only in Peter, but in the entire Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that God's people are called sojourners, as the、uh, American Standard Version has it, or pilgrims, as the New King James has it, or exiles, as the ESV renders it. We live in a world that is not our ultimate home. And it was precisely this status as being a spiritual foreigner that they had their citizenship, these Christians, in heaven and in the kingdom of God. It was precisely that fact that was getting them into a lot of trouble, and in a lot of trouble they were, not only in their private lives, in their own hearts. But also publicly in the world around them. The year 64 AD, Nero is on the throne and has been for about 10 years, and he is in the height of his frenzy and Christian hating days. He wants to purge Christianity from the Roman Empire. 
Peter, James, and the Apostle Paul will all die as martyrs under his reign. Because of this, uh, their Christian faith, they will be marginalized in society, alienated in relationships, threatened with loss of honor, property, employment, and ultimately their very lives. And so as we begin our journey with Peter, we have to understand together that Peter wants his readers right from the jump. You get this or you won't get the whole book right from the jump, to realize exactly what happens when you accept Jesus Christ and are born again and raised to new life, the sweeping ramifications of your faith in this world. He wants us to realize how we view ourselves, that we cannot think of ourselves as we used to think of ourselves in our former family and relationship. Now, The Holy Spirit really wants us to transform our understanding of who we are in Christ. How to live as a Christian in a world that is hostile, that doesn't get us, that doesn't get God, that is contrary to the basic principles of the gospel. How to engage the culture without compromising who we are. That is really the message of comfort, hope, and encouragement of 1 Peter. He's going to help you get over your culture shock of trying to live out the principles and who you are in Christ in a world that utterly rejects the truth. And so with that introduction, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, as much as I would like to dive into this epistle and cover more than just two verses. Really, Peter opens with such a punch, and there's so much uh, in this, so many theological principles that are so important to get. If you don't get verses 1 and 2, it will make or break you as a Christian. Just verses 1 and 2. He is preaching a huge sermon just by calling you a foreigner. Everybody's scratching their heads, but the the Jews in the crowd knew exactly what he was referring to. And so really, we're going to just take a look at these couple verses. Let's uh, divide our thoughts this way. Number one, here's who you are. You are these foreigners who are scattered in the world. And number two, here's why you are the way you are. Here's why the world doesn't get you. Here's why you don't fit in. Here's why there's frustration in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own family table, at work. Let's explain who you are and why you're that way. God is at work in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot going on. I mean, he mentions the Trinity predestination, sanctification, and salvation. There's no way we can get further than that. Amen? (laughs) 
Uh, I'll try that one more time. There's no way we could get any further, amen? Thank you. All right. So number one, here's who you are. He says, dear strangers. Oh, okay. Now, when the Bible labels you something, it's for a reason to help you understand who you are. When he calls you children of God, he doesn't call you the adults of God. He calls you the children of God because of your relationship with God. When he calls us brothers and sisters, we understand what he's saying our relationship with one another. When he calls us saints, which is just a word that means you're separated from sin and the world, and you're separated to God for his purposes. And then when he says you're a stranger, he's saying you are like a foreigner from another country. You are like an alien from another planet. You are padepidamos. In the Greek, it means to be displaced in a strange surrounding passing through an area that's not your home, to live or reside in a foreign country temporarily, like a pilgrim on his way to final destination. So let's stop and talk about that fact, what those implications are for us. So when Peter calls you a stranger, what is he saying? Well, we could say back to him, Peter, it takes one to know one. Because if anybody knew what it was like, To become a foreigner without moving at all, it would be the Apostle Peter. Now, you remember, one day he was a rough-and-tumble, unschooled fisherman. He was fishing, minding his own business, living in a lakeside town, when he had an encounter with the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was led to the Lord by his brother Andrew. Jesus sees him coming there in John chapter 1, verse 41, and says, oh, here comes Rocky, all right? He nicknames him Rocky or Rock because God is going to transform his character from being a wishy-washy kind of impulsive character to somebody who is steadfast and immovable. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is joined to Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so this transformation started to work in Peter. You know, his language changed right away. Certain words, if he went back to fish, certain phrases, certain words that maybe were off color or profane, suddenly disappeared. Different ethics. Perhaps he was more sensitive in his business practices. Maybe people were getting more for their shekel, more fish now. Different priorities. And one day he had to sit up at the table with Dad, Papa Zeb, and say, Dad, you know what? I'm going to follow the Lord. He's got a call on my heart. And dad's going to raise his eyebrow and say, what about the fish? What about the money? And he's going to say, dad, there's a whole different way of seeing life now. Well, what is up with you, Peter? You're changing. You're talking about heaven and hell. And you're talking about this Jewish rabbi guy running around. You don't act the same. You don't look the same. You don't talk the same. Everything's different about you. Peter has become a foreigner. Did he leave Capernaum? No. Has he moved away? No. Has he got in a boat and settled on the far side of the sea? No. 
Nothing has happened except he's been born again. The spirit of the living God has made him a new person, and that new person now immediately becomes a foreigner in the world because Jesus says when you're born from above and live below, you're going to have some troubles because the kingdom of God does not do anything the way the kingdom of this dark world does. And so now... Anybody like Peter, who's born again, does not often have a smooth transition. We become henna gaijin. The word gaijin means outside the circle, outside person. It literally means outside human. That's who you are when you're a foreigner. And Peter became an outside. We don't understand you anymore, Peter. Well... That's how it goes. When you're born from above and now you live below, for the time being, you're going to have some difficulty. <laughs> it's when you don't have difficulty that you want to wonder, yes or no, did I really get born again? Because when we join ourselves to Jesus, and Jesus had it so rough, and Jesus was the ultimate sojourner coming from heaven, living in a foreign world from, be- from above and below. And look what happened to him. He said, if they treated me that way, and then I get into your life, and you're acting like me and saying the same things that I said, which you're supposed to be doing, how is it that you think that you could be above your master? If they treated me that way and hated me, rejected me, and nailed me to the cross, why do you think that you're, they're going to throw you a party? <laughs> they are going to treat you the same way you are going to experience in your own heart culture shock because of the transformation. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. My friend, it's not about being good so you can get to heaven. It's about being made alive. That is what saves you. Coming to Christ and saying, opening your heart and making sure the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you life. Therefore, you become a good person because of having received eternal life, not in an effort to obtain it. And so that new life that's been planted in you as a seed from above starts to grow, and then you become more and more like the king who saved you. You start to talk more and more like somebody from that country. Now you are a foreigner. People look at you and go, I don't get you. Jesus looked at the crowd of Pharisees, and he just marvels at them. In John chapter 8, they have this huge heated exchange. And Jesus says, what is it with you? Why can't you understand my language? I'm quoting John 8. Jesus says, am I not speaking the same language as you? Why is it you cannot understand my plain Hebrew? And they say, Back to him. Oh, we understand. He says, no, 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 no. The reason you don't get me is because I'm from above and you're from below. You listen to your father from below. I am from above. 
He says, the reason that they don't get you is because they didn't get him. And it's the cultural difference of heaven versus earth's, earth's ways. And so they look at Jesus and go, we don't get you the same way that they look at you at Thanksgiving, at the table, when you say, you know what? Jesus changed my life. They're like, blah, blah, blah. we don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so you got religion. No, I didn't get religion. Religion got me. God got a hold of my life. And it just, it doesn't make sense. But when the new life comes in, it means the old life dies. We're united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. And we're raised to brand new life. And that's the issue that gets in the way. Listen to Colossians 1, verse 13. God has rescued us from the dominion, the kingdom. In Japanese, the word translated for kingdom is kuni, which means country. So they call God's kingdom the country of God. In Japanese, that's a literal translation, and it really works. So he says, God has rescued you from the country of of darkness and transferred you over to the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of all of our sins. I love the word that transfers us, may thistime, And it means to be taken or removed from one place to another. And so, though you didn't move, your personhood has changed. And now you have been transferred from one kingdom into another. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, where we eagerly await a savior from there. So all of this, these metaphors about how we belong to heaven must have an implication about how you live your daily life. We have a new father. We have a new life. We have a new home. We have a new way of thinking. We have a new way of life, even though we haven't traveled one mile. Now, you know, this new life has character qualities, in it, and those are the things that rub the world the wrong way. Citizens of the world say, I'm the captain of my own destiny. I do as I please. Citizens of heaven, he's the captain of my destiny. I do as he pleases. Citizens of the world, look out for number one. Citizens of heaven consider others more important than themselves and seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things are added to us. Citizens of the world value the appearance of things, the outward, Citizens of heaven value the things that are unseen. Heaven looks at the heart. Citizens of the world believe truth is relative. It changes. You decide. And I talk to many people about faith. I'll say, what about your sin? And they'll say, what sin? And I say, well, lying is a sin. Well, you call it a sin. I call it a human condition. You see, everybody out there in this world can decide what's true for themselves while the citizen of heaven believes in absolute truth. The citizen of the world says, religion is a personal thing. It's private. Shh, I don't talk about it. 
citizens of heaven shouted from the rooftops under a mandate from the king, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It is not a private, personal matter to God. Totally, 180 degrees different sense there. Citizens of the world, sexual promiscuity is okay. Citizens of heaven, sexual purity is what we strive for. Profane language is okay in one country, but in another country, the kingdom of God, uh, language needs to be clean and edifying. Citizens of the world say all roads lead to heaven and all religions are the same and have some good to it. Kingdoms of heaven say there is one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And anybody else other than Jesus Christ is a liar. Jesus said, I am the only way. I am the truth. I am the life. Whoever comes, uh, whoever wants to get to heaven has to go through me. But the world says nonsense. And so you see, you know, the world, the citizens of this world, they say, you know what? It's a free country. You can marry anybody you want. Boy with boy, girl with girl. And we say, citizens of heaven, say, we've got to abide by the holy ordinances of heaven. This isn't personal. It's not about you. We can't make this stuff up. We get it from him, and it's because we're citizens of heaven, and now we have culture shock. Why? Because of all those things they say. You know what? We don't like you. You don't fit in here. You need to shut up and be quiet. Like somebody told me, Jesus needs to take his place in the circle of all the other enlightened ones. And you remember what I told her. I said, look, lady. He is the circle. He invented the circle. He fills the circle. He defines the circle. All right? And he made the earth by speaking it into a circle. All right? So do not tell Jesus where he can sit or where he can't sit. Now, did that make me popular? No. It did not make me popular with the citizens here. Was there a hallelujah in the country where I will, I will ultimately wind up? Yes. And that is the problem, folks. How do we engage this culture in a respectful way to honor our host country as Peter will tell us to do? He will not say isolate. He will not say withdraw. And he will not say disrespect. And he will not say condescend. And he will not say hate or disparage them. But he will say, you engage in a way that brings glory to God. That you do not compromise. And so here comes the rub. It's when, you know what? To fit in a little bit better here, I'm going to be a little bit more quiet. And I'm not going to push my agenda. Well, it's not your agenda to push. It's his agenda. And so then that's the trick, the balancing act. To engage the host country in a respectful way without compromising. You can, you know, speak their their language and you can adapt to their business practices and you can tone down the rhetoric and the distinctions that make you a citizen of heaven. And guess what? You will increase numbers. 
It will seem to work. But you have denied who you are. And with, yes, you can uh, have more friends and less trouble, but you'll have less reward in heaven and fewer converts. Here's one uh, last comment, and then we move on. Karen Jobes from Commentary on First Peter. Some are not willing to stand apart from the world and suffer the consequences, so we compromise our faith and become not very distinguishable from unbelievers. We divorce at the same rate. We have the same addictions. We seek the same forms of entertainment. We wear the same fashions, and so on. Peter challenges Christians to re-examine our acceptance of society's norms and to be willing to suffer the alienation of being a visitor from a foreign country in our own culture whenever its values conflict with those of Christ. So point number two that we've just seen is that's who you are and now why? And he's going to blame God for your problems in a good way. He's saying the reason you don't fit in is because you're connected to somebody who didn't fit in. It's God at work in you, and you should be encouraged and comforted because of the uh, way that you don't fit in is actually a good thing. So he's going to try to encourage us. So here's why you don't fit in. God's at work. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. So in one sentence, we have the Trinity. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but the truth is taught from cover to cover. And though um, the Bible doesn't use the term right away, we know something's up when God is saying, let us make man in our Image in our likeness, Genesis 1.26. Then we find out, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The word in the Hebrew for God is plural there, Elohim. It means gods. But he's saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the gods, the Godhead family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not are, is one. So the quickest way to explain this would be where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he's praying for us in body, soul, and spirit. There is something about us that reflects his likeness and his image. We are three parts, but we are one. I do not think of myself as three different entities, though the Bible says I have a body and a soul and a spirit. In the same way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three entities, one being. And so I think just to take a look at the human body who's created in the likeness of this multiple God unity just kind of helps us to understand that. So the miracle begins by being chosen before time began by the Father. Now, he's saying, look, you're born again. Let me just explain that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have a different kind of flavor in making this happen that has made you this stranger, this foreigner. 
The Father had a part in it. The Son had a part in it. And the Holy Spirit had a part in it. So he says it right there. The first thing that had to happen was before the earth was, God the Father knew who you were and chose you to come to him. So you may not fit very well in this world, but be comforted in this, that God, the Father Almighty, knew you before time and eternity past, knew you before there was an earth, let alone your mama or your papa. And he decided, the word is to select or to choose from a group. He saw you in the group and said, that one is mine. Check. The word is eklektos, where we get the word elect. He voted for you. He chose you. He picked you from the crowd in foreknowledge. The word for foreknowledge means to set one's love on a person in a personal and intimate way. So he's saying to these people who are squeezed uh, and troubled because of their foreignness in this God-hating culture that they're in, he's saying, be of good cheer. This is, this is proof that you're connected to this God who, number one, chose you. The world is saying two thumbs down. Nero, the emperor, is saying thumbs down. And God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, has seen you in eternity past and said thumbs down up to this one as opposed to the rest of the group that's what the word teaches now the implications of that will make us all crazy i'm not going to be able to explain it to you i will say this i agree with dl moody the elect are the whosoever wills the non-elect are the whosoever wants (laughs) somehow my friend God is choosing because dead people who are dead in sin cannot make themselves alive. He pursues you. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but he first loved us and gave himself. He comes calling. He's the initiator. He's the hound of heaven. You can do nothing. You're dead in your sins. You're paralyzed. You can't, dead people can't hear anything. He must choose you. And he said, God looked at you knew you before, and decided and said yes on this one. And your job was to respond. And you did. Because he elected you. Then you responded. And then I, or I responded because he elected me. How about this? (laughs) He knew that I couldn't choose him. But if I could choose, I would choose him, so he chose me to choose him. (laughs) Thank you. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, he is so unfair. You know what? Listen, you can take him to court. (laughs) Honestly, yeah, you can tell him everything you feel about how he does things because you have an appointment with him. And you could bring that up, but something tells me that you won't want to be bringing that up when you're standing in his presence. If you are feeling like, oh, well, then I guess I wasn't chosen. No, excuse me, choose him, then you'll know you're chosen. 
God will not violate a free will that he said, I need you to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gives you the choice, but we know he chooses. And somewhere he's choosing and I'm choosing and it comes together and it's a beautiful thing, he says. To have that fatherly care before we were even born. He said, I loved you before You even existed. And I rigged this thing for you. That's exactly what election means. I set you up to win. Now, take that to Nero. Let Nero take my job away. Let him throw me in a furnace. Let him do whatever he wants. God Almighty, before the earth was spinning, chose me and said, you are going to live with me, reigning and ruling forever and ever. No tongue can then, no tongue can then, yeah. Anyway, nobody can say nothing about that, period. (laughs) All right, so God has done this thing. So he's trying to, you know, he's trying to, to encourage them. You know what? When you are born into an alcoholic home and raised with unmentionable abuse, my favorite word in the Bible is chosen. When you are so without hope and so filled with pain and so confused and so hurt and so alone and so upside down, And you read that before this planet was spinning in space, there was a God that saw you, saw the suffering, and said, check, that's going to end one day. That's a beautiful thing. Then the Spirit comes in, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the agent whereby we're moved from one country to the next. Let's call him the moving man, all right? He's the one who takes us and separates us from our past life to our new. The Father draws us by his spirit. He woos us. He convicts us. He arranges the divine appointments where we meet Christians out of the clear blue sky in June 1979, everywhere I turned, there was a born-again Christian. As soon as I became a Christian, I never met another one for a long time. But everywhere I turned, on the bus, sitting next to me, while I'm thinking about the Lord, a woman reading her Bible, Sonny, do you know the Lord Jesus? I'm like, what? Why? How did you know? What is going on here? Then, in front of my office where I work, downtown San Francisco, a street preacher, In front of the door, while I'm wrestling, is there a God? He's preaching in front of the door, and every time the door opened, in came the sound of the gospel. I couldn't go anywhere. And that is the drawing of the Holy Spirit. And when we come to him, Christians know we've known that voice all our lives because we were checked in eternity past. When I was in the fourth grade in that terrible home, we're swinging on a swing set. And a friend of mine is saying, there's no God. And he's talking to another friend. And I'm swinging and I'm listening. I'm being raised in a godless, abusive home. And I hear, he says, there's no God. And I say, 
Oh, oh, you're gonna get it. <laughs> Why? 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 Why do things like that happen? In the sixth grade, I said, Dad, I think there's a better way to live. We're always doing the wrong thing. I think we should do the right thing. And he said, what are you going to grow up and be a minister? <laughs> yes. You wouldn't think it, but yeah, it happened. Why? Because the wooing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit always knew this is mine. And I always knew, even in all of my sin, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be doing this. I belong to him. And in June 3rd, 1979, in a disco, that voice came full on like a mad dog and just said, today, you turn today, now. And I walked out of that club and I was this person you know now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was after me from before the foundations of the world. He lavished his love on me and not just me. But to all those who would believe and receive. The Spirit is at work in mysterious ways. I love that painting in Prince Caspian. The the kids, the little British kids are at the train depot and Lucy looks at the picture and she says oh that looks so realistic and sorry (laughs) I I know that was awful I'm sorry Rod (laughs) it looks like it's moving and and so uh, and then she and then Peter says oh cut it out knock it off you're making me seasick just looking at it and then there's this calling and this wooing, and suddenly they're just sucked in, and they're in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is working for the obedience to Jesus by the sprinkling of his blood. This is where people stop short. Folks think it's all about escaping hell, or doing good deeds, or what I can't do anymore, but it's about being connected to the Lord. And obeying him. And the word to obey, I love what John says in his first epistle. He says, this is how we know we love God, by keeping his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not a burden, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. What is he asking you to do? When you hear the word obey, we all get crazy. What is he asking you to do? To love God with everything you have. To love one another. To carry one another's burdens. To reach out to people in need. This is just terrible commands. Awful. To to forgive people. To show mercy. To act justly. To do the right thing. To let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that is good for edifying people. Just awful things to do. To resist the devil, not to destroy yourself, to turn from sin, to help hurting people, to be nice and not say bad things about other people. They're awful commands. They're terrible. To treat others the way that you would want to be treated. He said, 
God the Father voted for you, checked you off, and said, I want you, you belong to me. And the Spirit said, well, I'm going to go and get them and bring them in so that the Son can be their Lord and to keep them safe from harm and from destroying themselves and from perishing so that the Son can be over them, protecting them, and they could be in right relationship with God, doing the things that bring life and not death. That's obedience. Not cutting out the things I really enjoy, but staying away from the things that destroy you and doing the things that bring life and peace and blessing to fulfill the dreams and satisfy our desires to keep us safe from sin and evil. All of our best interests to establish the work of your hands, to bless you with peace, That's what happens when you obey the Lord. The Lord looked at his disciples one day and said, excuse me, I've got a question. What's all this Lord, Lord? Every other sentence, Lord, Lord, Lord. All day long I'm hearing, Lord, can we do this? Lord, Lord, Lord. But you don't do what I say. You are always using that name. But do you know what the name means? You're always talking about the Lord. uh, The Lord did this. The Lord did that. I talked to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, all day long. And he said, you do know what the word means, right? Lord, why do you keep using the word? And then you leave the place and you go and you do your own thing like you don't have a Lord. And the Lord isn't looking to kill your joy, but to complete your joy, to fill you up with joy. Get that bad theology out of your head. So that you can say, I want to start obeying you, Lord, so that I can have the joy that you're trying to give. I'm going to close with this illustration from the mission field about obedience. Bible teacher Donald Gray Barnhouse told the following story. A friend of his was on the mission field and came back with this. A young son of a missionary couple in Zaire was playing in the yard. Suddenly, the voice of the boy's father rang out from the porch, Philip, obey me instantly. Drop to your stomach. Immediately, the youngster did as his father commanded. He said, now crawl toward me as fast as you can. The boy obeyed. Stand up and run to me. Philip responded, got up without asking questions and ran to his father's arms. As the youngster turned to look at the tree by which he had been playing, he saw a large, deadly viper hanging from one of the branches. At the first command of his father, Philip could have hesitated and asked, what do you want me to do that for? And I'm playing, I'll be in just a minute. Instead, he heard the voice of his father whose heart is always looking out for his son's well-being and sees something that the son can't see. But because he obeyed instantly without dragging his heels, dropped to his stomach, crawled, he was out of harm's way. Let us take this to heart and understand obedience to God is not an option. They are the Ten Commandments. They are not the Ten Suggestions. (laughs) Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, your goodness, your kindness to us. And thank you, Father, that your commands are for our sake. That they bring health and wholeness, joy, fulfillment. We look to you now, Father, as we remember what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. As we celebrate communion, Father, touch our hearts. Let us be reminded of your great investment in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me explain to you how communion is going to go. We celebrate communion the first Sunday of every month, usually, unless there's some kind of um, scheduling problem, but you can usually bank on that. And so, uh, Shelly is going to sing a song before we start communion. I'm going to reflect on the things that we've been talking about in prayerful attitude. And then uh, we take communion. And here's how we do it. We pass the bread out first. So after Shelly sings, the worship team will come back. And the brothers will serve you the bread. We'll hold the bread together. And we'll eat together after I pray over that. Uh, There'll be a song in between the bread and the cup that we take. We take communion because when he says, and you can chime away if you want. Oh, thank you. So much nicer. The last phrase there, you're chosen and sanctified for the obedience to the Son by the sprinkling of the blood. Our part is to obey. And God says, and by the way, you'll never do it perfectly. Therefore, the sprinkling of the blood comes into play. And that's an Old Testament reference of how after the Ten Commandments were given, the people said, we will do everything you have asked. And the Lord was like, of course you will. And then right after that, the next verse, it says the high priest came and sprinkled blood on the crowd, blood of a lamb that said, yes, thank you for saying you will obey everything, but you're going to fall short. But I've provided a way to make you right. Keep trying to obey. Keep obeying. You will obey better and better the older you get in the Lord. But know this. You're covered in your failures. God's plan, God's love. So he says, let's think of it as a meal. My broken body, like bread that keeps you alive, but this time it's eternal life. And, and drink that keeps you nourished. Think of my blood, what I did for you. It gives you life, eternal life. So every time you have this meal, the Lord's Supper, remember what I did for you. You're safe. I bought and paid for you, even in your failings. Yes, thank you for wanting to obey, but you're going to need a little help. Let me cover what you can't provide. So Shelly's going to sing, then we'll, I'll come back up. And we'll, I'll direct you. And then Now, if you don't want to participate in communion because you're not a Christian, you should not take communion if you're not a Christian. Bad idea. You can bow your head before and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please save me. Now I want to take communion. Done. Then take it. 
when you can't kid around with like magic potion thing, you have to know the Lord. If you're uncomfortable for any reason, don't want to receive uh, the Lord's Supper, as we call it, uh, then simply decline being served. Not a problem for any reason. So, Father, we just give you this time as Shelly sings, just touch our hearts and, and then just be with us, Lord, guide us to remind us of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers are going to come now as we meditate on the goodness of the Lord. I'm going to serve you first the bread. So, Ray, go ahead and begin to lead us so that we can uh, turn our hearts toward heaven. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this symbol of your broken body through Jesus. Thank you for our hope in heaven being a firm foundation. Now as we serve one another, Lord, we pray that you bless our hearts with the memory of what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) You're going to have trouble fitting in in this life. And it's okay. Because in the life to come and in heaven, you fit perfectly. And I long to see that day And I'm going to look at you and you at me and we're going to be rejoicing that God's grace made us sufficient. We we made it because the Father chose us. The Spirit sanctified us for obedience to the Son of God by the sprinkling of His blood. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to you. Thank you for this good news. Help us carry it out in our hearts and not keep it to ourselves but now do the work that you've called us to do. Foreigners as we are, help us, Lord, to reach others so that they can be as strange as we are, (laughs) as strangers as we are. God, I want to thank you. Commit ourselves to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday.